For those of you who may be wondering, I mean, this is a obviously this song that we just sang, O, o Word of God Incarnate, is um, a song that's written in a liturgical context. And so for those of you who wonder um, what the lyrics are talking about when it says, it is the golden casket where <laughs> gems of truth are stored, um, historically, the gospel has been stored in a gold box. Uh, we do not do that, but we do store it in a Home Depot tub with a <laughs> yellow lid. So go. that's as close as, as we get. Actually, it's in its own box, but anyway, I, I just had to laugh because that's a level of formality we have not yet gotten to. Uh, speaking of psalms, or songs, the Advent hymn we processed to today, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is my personal favorite. It's a translation and arrangement of several Latin plain chant antiphons from the 700s, so old lyrics, called Veni Veni, Emmanuel, and was set to an existing French tune in the 17th century. It's a song about rejoicing, but it's complicated. It's written in a minor key, and even when it lifts to its relative major at the refrain, it's only for a second, three bars. And then it falls again. It just teases you with that lift. And then it takes it right back. By the way, nice use of the Picardy third at the end of the, <laughs> liked it. Makes everything sound happier. <laughs> it's nerdy stuff. There's tension, even in the rejoicing. And I think it captures subtly and implicitly the inherent, or the inherent tension of the penitential season of Advent, Christmas and the gospel itself. I was reminded of that tension sometime back by my counselor, who during our conversation pointed me to Revelation 12, the ominous telling of the Christmas story, not from an earthly perspective, but from the perspective instead of heaven. By the way, if you want to freak everyone out on Christmas morning, don't read Luke 2. Read from Revelation 12. Uh, you may have to issue a content warning, uh, which always cracks Lauren and I up now because smoking is listed as one of the things you might see in these really, really bad movies. I'll sum it up for you. An immense red dragon sporting seven heads and ten horns is poised and waiting before the woman who's about to give birth so that he might devour the child as he's born. But the dragon's denied this pleasure by God himself who rescues the child and preserves him. Frustrated and furious, the dragon takes the battle to the archangel Michael and his army of angels, but is defeated, humiliated, and thrown down to earth, ever raging, and never one to give up. His battle is now with humanity, and his tactics are deception and accusation. Having failed with Jesus and failed with Michael, he settles. His pleasure is now our harm. 
The point is, and not to burst anyone's bubble, Christmas is not a silent night by any stretch of the imagination. It's a battle for life and death. We rejoice at the incarnation of Jesus, but there's tension even in the rejoicing. Major lift, minor fall. And it's this reality is reflected in today's reading. And by the way, I don't know if you saw my email. When I say major lift, minor fall, I'm talking about going from a major key to a minor key. Um, so it's the whole Leonard Cohen thing that I quoted there. I realize that's the first time I've said it in this sermon and might not make sense to some of you. <clears throat> Traditionally, the third Sunday of Advent is known as Gaudete Sunday. Gaudete being a Latin word meaning rejoice or joy. Even in this penitential time of preparation, we're reminded or literally kind of commanded to rejoice, lighten up. It's why the candle for this Sunday is pink or rose colored, the color of joy and not purple, the color of repentance. We're reminded not to cling too tightly to our fasts because the birth of Jesus is right around the corner. But still, there's tension here. The contrast between the reading from Isaiah and the reading from James, for example, could hardly be stronger. Isaiah paints a gloriously beautiful picture of a parched land exulting, the desert blooming, and the whole earth rejoicing. In counterpoint, James tells his readers they must simply be patient and endure persecution and suffering. Isaiah is exuberant. James is, well, kind of a downer. Major lift, minor fall. And the Magnificat from Luke 1, 46 through 55, the beautiful song of Mary, who was, by the way, an adolescent girl who, if you read the previous verses, has fled to the hills immediately after Gabriel tells her that she, a virgin, is pregnant. I mean, how do you explain that to the respectable, upstanding members of your small town? The Magnificent, the Magnificat is, is forged in this time of exile with her cousins, Elizabeth and Zechariah, in the hills outside Galilee. From an earthly perspective, not anywhere close to the ideal circumstances. And you have to think, there was more than a little tension there. Read, read the words of the Magnificat, and you can feel that tension. There's also great tension in the interchange between John's disciples and Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, which is, by the way, where I'm going to be speaking from the rest of my time. Matthew chapter 11. Verse 2 sets the stage. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. And John's disciples ask Jesus John's doubtful question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Things haven't just taken a challenging turn for John. They have gone terribly wrong. John's in prison, 
about to be executed. And as a result, he's saying to Jesus, should I believe? Are you really the one? For John, this question is ultimate for himself and for his followers. Is my life worth it? But this is John, the one who as yet an unborn baby leapt in his mother's uh, Elizabeth's womb when Mary had greeted her. John, who came to be known as the baptizer, the man who at one time pointed to Jesus and, and declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He'd seen Jesus and declared to everyone, this is the one. Here's a man of whom Jesus says later in this passage in verse 11, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Here, here, here's a man who, who's been specifically anointed by God with divine revelation to discern who Jesus Christ is. And yet, when everything's gone wrong for him, when he experiences real darkness, he starts to doubt, are you really the one? If this is true, it means that anybody can doubt. If, if John the Baptist can doubt, then anybody can have sincere doubts about Jesus. And especially, according to the Bible, when you're suffering, when you're struggling through the troubles that come to you as, as to everyone. But John joins a very long line of people, Job, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, David, and many of the other psalmists, a whole list of people who had serious doubts about God, and yet there they are in the Bible. Jesus doesn't look at John the Baptist who's doubting and say, come on, man. After all the divine revelation, after everything you've seen, you're doubting me? He doesn't do that. And if you look at all the frank and terrible cries of despair from Job and Habakkuk and Jeremiah and the psalmist, especially Psalm 39 and 88 that basically tell God to get lost, you see that God is actually very understanding of doubt. I don't know any thoughtful believer that doesn't have at least periods in which doubt comes. I certainly do. There's so much tension in John's question. Are you the one or shall we look for another? Are you the one? From the context, it's pretty clear that John is talking about the Jewish Messiah. Are you Messiah? The one we expect to come and help us throw off the yoke of oppression. Are you Messiah or should we look for someone else? But what's intriguing is that he doesn't use, John doesn't use the word Messiah here. He doesn't use the word Christos. He just says, are you the one? That's an amazingly salient question, even for those today who aren't looking for the Messiah. I have a good friend who spent most of his professional life counseling college students. He says probably 80%, that's his statistic, of the college students he counsels are all torn up over one question. Who's the one? the one that will make everything okay. 
the one that will help me with my terrible, low self-esteem, the lover, the romantic partner, the one who will help me feel complete. He also says there's an increasing number of students he sees who just believe and despair that it's impossible ever to find the one. And they're incredibly angry. Are you the one is an existential question. John doesn't ask, are you the one or is there no one? No. Are you the one or should we look for another? It implies that if Jesus isn't the one, it's going to have to be someone else or something else because we've got to live for something or someone. There's got to be something ultimate, something you believe will infuse your life with meaning and safety and significance. And whatever that is, it drives you. As human beings, we simply cannot escape this. We live in this tension all the time. Are you the one? Because if you're not, I will find another. Infinite Jest author David Foster Wallace in 2005 delivered a brilliant commencement address. You've heard me tell a story from it. It's the fish in water. What is water? That's how he starts it out. But part of the middle part of that address goes like this. This, I submit, is the freedom of a real education. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, keep in mind he's not a Christian, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing you, start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, and parables the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping this truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid. A fraud always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing.
or as Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan famously sang in his brief time as a contemporary Christian music artist. <laughs> you, just, you have to giggle when you say that. <laughs> you're going to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. I wish I could say it with his <laughs> melodious intonation. It's not a question of if. It's only a question of who or what. That's why John's question is such a big question. And I love Jesus' response in verse 4. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed from, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have new good news preached to them. This is a penetrating answer because everyone, including John, understood that Messiah would be a strong man who would surround himself with the strong. He would come in strength because his job would be to bring judgment, judgment on evil, judgment on oppression, judgment on injustice. And the only way to do that would be to be strong politically, militarily, and economically. How else could you possibly bring judgment on evil? But Jesus isn't anything like that. He described his own heart as gentle and lowly. He surrounded himself with weak people. He spent an inordinate amount of time with the sinful and the broken and the sick. And he constantly preached the paradox of the strength of weakness and the weakness of strength. And there's something of this paradoxical weakness very close at hand for John. I was your herald, and now I'm in prison. If you're Messiah and I'm your herald, why am I about to die? Look at me. Everything's gone wrong. And Jesus' answer is remarkable. Technically, it's not a quote from the Old Testament, but pretty well sums things up. I am healing the blind. I am cleansing the leper. I am preaching good news to the poor. Isaiah 35, which we read just a couple of weeks ago, says, Your God will come, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. There's also a nod here to Isaiah 61 that says, The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the year of the Lord's favor. That's me. I've come for the poor. In Luke 6, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor. And in Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus loves people who are weak powerless, lame, blind, economically poor. He loves them. He cares for them. And people who are walking in Jesus' footsteps must care for them too. But even those who aren't literally blind and lame and poor, Jesus says, even you, I will only work with you if you understand that you are spiritually blind and lame and poor. Martin Luther wrote in the 16th century, grace is given freely only to those without merits and the most undeserving and cannot be obtained by any efforts, endeavors, or works, whether small or great, even of the best and most virtuous of men. 
they seek and pursue right and they seek and pursue righteousness with burning zeal the only people i bless jesus says are the poor and the powerless only sinners and sufferers i think that's why jesus adds blessed is the one who is not offended by me because he knows he's offensive because you don't warn someone not to be offended unless you're about to say something offensive. If you say, I'm going to tell you something, but please don't be offended, it means you're about to be offended. It's akin to saying, with all due respect. <laughs> In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said that whenever anyone actually met Jesus, they never responded, oh, what a nice teacher of morality and love. They hated him. Or... They ran away from him, or they worshipped him. People responded to Jesus in extreme ways. And it's not just the claims he made about himself that offend people. It's because of what he, he implies about us. Jesus' claims say, you're blind. You're weak. You're dumb and you're lame. And there is nothing you can do to save yourself. So you need a savior and you need a master and you need a Lord. And that at its core is offensive to every person on the planet. I think a lot of people imagine Jesus to be a lot like Mr. Rogers. For those of you too young to know, Mr. Rogers, played by Tom Hanks, hosted a children's show that he began every day by saying, among other things, I like you just the way you are. Not any tension there. You'd never kill Mr. Rogers. <laughs> but here's what's both so beautiful and offensive about the gospel. Jesus says, yes, salvation and grace can come to you just the way you are, but it only comes to those who are not satisfied with the way they are. Because they've admitted they're weak. They know they're blind. They know they're lame. And when Jesus and when grace meets you there, it, it, it then gives you a holy discontent with the parts of your life that must be amended and the power of the Holy Spirit to amend them. It's offensive to have to come to terms with the fact that you are weak. You are blind. You are poor. You're dead. But it's beautiful that Jesus became all of those things willingly in order to redeem you. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Minor fall, major lift, tension. I, I love um, last week when Steve preached, it was so, such a great sermon. And in it, he gave some identity statements, five identity statements from Romans 14 and, and Romans 15. And the one from Romans 14, one, what he said is we are a people who welcome the weak person because God has welcomed him. Hmm. 
That's a, that's a good identity statement for a church. Why has God welcomed him? Because salvation only comes to the weak. It's not for strong people who are worthy of it. My salvation, Jesus says, comes through weakness and is only for weak people who know there's nothing they can do to deserve it, but still, who trust me for it. It's not an easy thing to admit, but when you do, when you do, it'll give you something to rejoice about. Minor fall, major lift. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.